forward to diving into 1 Samuel. Let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing our time in the Word. Father, we're grateful for all of Scripture that you've given to us for our instruction about who you are and the relationship that you want with us. And we just thank you for it. It also reveals about ourselves and our sin nature and our human tendencies that often want to move away from you instead of close to you. And we just ask that you would teach us now through your word, that you'd illumine our minds, that we'd be able to understand it, that you would help us to be faithful to the text, and that you would uh, just make yourself known to us today. And we just ask those that are still coming or on their way or coming for worship that, uh, that they'd have safety on the roads. We ask that in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so we are starting a study in 1 Samuel and hoping to run this through the end of June and, and do the whole book by then. Um, that's a little bit aggressive, but I think it's pretty doable. So that's uh, going to be our goal. We'll take a chapter or two at a time. Uh, a couple times we'll take three chapters because of the content um, lends itself to that. Um, but I, I'd encourage you, if you have a little bit of extra time um, devotionally, to be reading in 1 Samuel and I think that'll help us as we, uh, as we go through our class. Um, one tool that, I've, that I use regularly and I'd just like to commend to you is these um, scripture journals. And this is First and Second Samuel. Just, I mean, see how thick it is. And the reason it's so thick is because they only print on half of it. So on the other half, they put lines. And it's a, it's a thick paper. So it's not like the tissue-thin paper that, that are in most of our Bibles. So the thick paper al allows you to write on it. And so as you're reading through, as you're seeing things, um, you can write on it. And, and if you're like me, I, I, when I'm reading my, my good Bible, I, I don't like to mark in it because I'm afraid I'm going to mark something wrong or, you know, something silly like that. Uh, but in this, I, I, Lisa, how much was this? Do you remember? Ten, nine or ten dollars for this. So that's just one volume. You can buy a whole set if you want, but I, in the Old Testament, I just buy one at a time. Um, it's like you can mark it up and it's like just write your thoughts down as things are coming to you and it's really helped me in my devotional aspect of the book and so I just wanted to share that with you in case it was of interest. Um, the other thing is we do have a set of notes on the back page, or the back um, podium, there we go, back page. The back page has a little bit of homework that we'll get to at the end of the class um, as we move through. So what we want to um, cover first today is a little bit of an introduction to the book, and then we'll get into chapter one as well. So that's where we're headed today. So what we want to think about is what is this book all about, and where does it fit in the canon of scripture? Um, if you just zoom out to 30,000 feet, we'll see three main characters throughout this book. And the, the book is a history book. It's, it's telling us the history of Israel. And it does that by looking at three main characters in, in sequential order. And those are Samuel, Saul, and David. We all know who those people are. And so that's the, that's the method that the history is being told to us. The, the timeline is a little small up there, sorry. But it, it, it covers about 150 years. And these are very approximate dates. Another commentator I looked at had, um, had things different by about 40 or 50 years but essentially 1150 B.C. to 1000 B.C. We think of 1000 B.C. as that's David right there. That's kind of the easy thing to remember. That's when David becomes king is right around 1000 B.C. 
And so we see Samuel being born about 150 years. Um, you know, that doesn't sound right now that I'm saying that. I don't think he was 150 years old. Well, David would have been over 40 when he was, when he was appointed king. So, yeah, that's, that, that's roughly right. Loose dates here. <laughs> um, each of David and Saul had um, about 40-year reigns as king. Um, we see Samuel has a lengthy time as a judge before, uh, before Saul is appointed king, maybe as long as 50 years, so it's covering a lot of territory. Where this fits in the canon of Scripture is some overlap with the book of Judges. Um, so some commentators think that Samuel and Samson were actually either contemporaries or significant overlap. And if you think about what's happening in the book of Samuel, there's a lot of talk about Philistines. Well, there was a lot of talk about Philistines in the Samson story too. So common enemy, so that kind of makes sense. There's, there's reasons for that. We're not going to take the time to explore um, those details. But that's, that's, the rough, um, that's the rough timeline that we're dealing with. Um, originally, First and Second Samuel um, in the Hebrew Bible were one book. It was just called Samuel. And then eventually they broke it out when the Septuagint was tr uh, translated. They broke it out and called it First and Second Kingdoms. And then First and Second Kings were Third and Fourth Kingdoms. So they broke it out that way. Um, Jerome, when he translated the Latin Vulgate in about A.D. 400, um, went back to calling it Samuel, and then we've broken it down between um, First and Second Samuel. Um, Josephus was one of the one of the old historians that noted that Samson and Samuel were contemporaries. So there is some historical uh, basis for that. Although Josephus didn't live back then, he was like he was post Jesus, so he was after the time of Christ when he was writing that history. Things that have been told orally and not written down. There's a lot of different thoughts um, about themes. I consulted three different commentaries and they both, or all three of them had different ideas about what the themes of the book were. So in my reading of the book and then looking at what they said, these are three that I came up with. There's, there's others. So God's kingship over Israel, his sovereignty over man, um, and then kind of a smaller level theme, God opposing the proud and lifting up the humble. And you know, we kind of see that in, in in the most obvious case of Saul being very proud and David being very humble, and Saul is pushed down and David is lifted up. So we will um, be hitting on these themes as we go through. Um, one of the ways that the writer uses to pull these themes out is the method of contrast. So that contrast of Saul and David, for example, and their character qualities is something that's really important um, to, the, to the writing of the book. So what is the main point of the book? Uh, this is another thing that's widely debated. One, um, one writer, commentator said that the, per the reason the book was written was to record the establishment of kingship in Israel and es explain its theological significance. So very historically focused. It's a history book. That's fine. I, I kind of zoomed that out you know, further, and my kind of synopsis is that this is God's plan to reign perfectly over men. And he wants to do that as a king, and he wants to show them that the perfect king is what they need to reign over them. And all of this is for man's good and for God's glory. That's why 
he's doing this. And so the way that that fits in is we have the book of Judges, and Judges shows us that man left to their own devices is a complete disaster. It's just a mess. And everyone does what's right in their own eyes because they're inventing their own rules, and they need someone to rule over them. And that period of history should have caused Israel to say, we want a perfect king. Instead, what they say, and we'll get to this in, in several weeks, um, and I think it's in chapter 7 or 8, they say, we want a king like the other nations. They should have said, we want a king like you, God. But they said, we want a king like the other nations. God had planned on providing for a king. This was not a completely foreign concept. Um, if you go back to Genesis 48 or 49, Jacob blesses Judah and says, the scepter won't depart from you. You will be a ruler. Not necessarily, he doesn't say the word king, but that's kind of implied that he would be a ruler. Um, we see in, in Exodus, um, after, the, um, after Pharaoh's army is destroyed in the sea, and you see the song of Moses, Moses says, the Lord will rule forever and ever, implying that God is the king. And it's in a theocratic institution at that point. It makes perfect sense. God is the ruler over Israel. This is God's plan. In Deuteronomy, God says there will be a time when you come and say, and he uses almost the exact words that they use in 1 Samuel 8, I think it is. Um, we want a king like the other nations. And he says, and I will give you a king. But here's the rules for kings. And he says all these, you know, there's like 10 different things that kings should do and shouldn't do. One, very notably, is that the king should write out his own copy of the law and he should observe it for the rest of his, his reign, the rest of his life. A very important thing to make sure that God is the one giving the king instructions. So who's really in charge? God. God is the sovereign ruler. So we're going to see this, this um, development of this idea of God as king throughout this book. And that's where this is headed. And it's almost like the, the people come and say, we want a king because this judge thing isn't working. God says, fine, well, I'll give you a king. First, I'm going to give you a king to show you how bad it can be, and that's Saul. And then I'm going to show you, I'm going to give you a king that shows you how good it can be, but not quite perfect, and that's David. And then there's like all this, you know, Solomon and then the fragmentation after Solomon. And all of this should build a desire in Israel for a perfect king. We need a perfect king. We're not going to find it in any human being. We need King Jesus. That's what they need. And so that's where this book is heading. That's where it fits into the whole of Scripture and the meta narrative of Scripture of God reigning over men and wanting a relationship um, with us. The general outline for the book uh, breaks down among these characters. And it's, this, it's these contrasts that I was talking about before. We see, first of all, a contrast between Samuel and Eli. Um, these are the last two judges of Israel. Samuel and Saul is really a transition section, and then Saul and David, the first two kings of Israel at the end of the book. The way the writer lays this out is really interesting. As one major figure is rising in prominence, the other major figure is declining in prominence. That doesn't always mean that the de declension is a bad thing. Samuel declining in prominence is not a bad thing. Saul declining in prominence was a bad thing because there's a lot of bad things going on um, with Saul. But we see this rise and fall, the rise and fall. And so it's this back and forth and a really kind of neat um, approach. Sometimes it's called an X structure of how the book is uh, put together. 
Um, the genre of the book is, one writer called it a, a hero story. So each of these major characters are major heroes in the book. Some of them are tragic heroes, like Saul. And then, then there are micro heroes, so smaller characters that also play the role of hero. Hannah, in chapter one, is a micro hero. We're only gonna see her for a very short period of time, but we're gonna see these wonderful characteristics about her and how she interacts um, with God and makes a difference in the story. But in spite of all the characters with their rising and falling and their character flaws and incredible stories, the main character is not Samuel, it is not Saul, it is not David, it is God himself. That's who we're talking about. That's what the story of 1 Samuel is about. God giving himself to Israel, giving them what they think they need to, in order to show them who they need. He gives them what they need in order to show them who they need. So often I think that's the case in our lives. We have things that we want and desire in our lives. God may give those to us, and we might find those to be unsatisfactory. That what we thought we wanted isn't actually what satisfies us. And God has given us what we wanted in order to show us who we need. And when that happens to us and that discontent sets in after we pursued something for so long, we ought to say, God, my satisfaction is in you alone. That's what God wants us to do. That's where God wants to bring us. We're going to move now to, to talk about um, chapter 1. And you might say that this is, this is Samuel's birth story. Um, Hannah is the, the main figure in this chapter. Um, but what we'll see is that the point that we're, we'll see, the micro point, is that difficulties in our lives are opportunities to exercise faith that God has a plan and that he will enfold it in his time for our good. Let's, so we'll see how that plays out in Hannah's life. So let's turn to chapter 1 of 1 Samuel, and I've titled this chapter More Than Samuel's Birth Story. There's more going on than just Samuel being born, about Hannah being blessed with a child and overcoming um, a real problem for her in her infertility, something that she um, had a lot of consternation about. And we'll see in the, in, these first, in the open of the book that it kind of opens like the book of Ruth because it, bends, it begins with a story about an apparently ordinary Israelite family and what's going on in their lives and some difficulties that they had. And it's how they are living during the period of the judges. So let's turn to chapter 1. And if someone could read for us loudly verses 1 and 2. Well, you know what? I'll do these because there's all kinds of crazy names and I'd rather I stumble through them than make you do that. Um, and I'll get you involved in reading in a little bit. There was a certain man of Remethane Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Joram, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, and Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. So you know what the key is with Bible names? If you don't know what they are, just say them confidently and loud. <laughs> and I probably messed up most of those, so we'll, we'll just go with that. All right, so here we see um, this introduction of some characters. We see Elkanah, the father. Um, we see Hannah and uh, Peninnah. So what we learned about Elkanah is he had two wives and a long pedigree. Um, he lives in the, um, within the tribe of Ephraim. And he appears to be a fairly wealthy person that we'll learn later, so I'm not going to take the time to trace all of that down. 
but just one example, when they dedicate Samuel, they bring a bull, which is the most expensive peace, peace offering you can bring. You don't have to bring a bull, but you can, and they did. So that is some indication that he's relatively wealthy. Um, his long pedigree seems to point toward the fact that maintaining his family line was important. Hannah is mentioned first. She's noted as not having children, which is a really difficult thing for a woman in the Old Testament. It's a difficult thing for women today. And what's kind of implied here, or commentators think there's a little bit of speculation, is that Hannah was the first wife, and she's mentioned first, and that because she was barren, Elkanah married a second wife in order to maintain the family line, kind of similar to Abraham, what he was doing when Sarah was barren. And then Peninnah is the second wife um, and has, has children with Elkanah. All right, let's move on to verse 3. So here, it's a little bit longer section, but I need someone to read verses 3 through 8. Okay, Hutch, thanks. All right, thank you. So here we see the, the situation laid out for us. We see the family situation. We see Hannah's difficulty. We see the family making an annual worship trip to Shiloh. Uh, when I first read this, I thought this must have been one of the commanded feasts. It's not mentioned that this is one of the feasts that are commanded for them to go. So that would just be speculation. One commentator thought that this was just something that the family did, that they went every year um, and, and had this event. Um, Shiloh was where the tabernacle had been set up back in Joshua's day, um, in Joshua 18. Um, that's where they put the, the tabernacle, and evidently it stayed there for quite a period of time. This would be a fair number of years after that event. Um, we're introduced to a couple of additional characters. This is a little bit of foreshadowing here. Um, sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, are mentioned as being priests of the Lord. Um, and this is like, you know, the bad guy music starts playing when we introduce these guys because they're not, um, they are not godly priests at all. 
And we see some actions that are being taken here. We see Elkanah's action as a husband. He is demonstrating love for his wife, Hannah, and giving her a double portion of the, of the offering. This offering that was given was probably a peace offering, which is, allows the worshiper to participate in it. They eat some of the um, offered food. Um, we see God's action noted a number of times. Her, Hannah's barrenness was because the Lord had acted. God had chosen in his sovereignty to close her womb, to not allow her to have children. Peninnah is described as, as Hannah's rival, and she provokes her. She's like, this is a nasty thing to do. She rubs it in her face, I have children and you don't. And Hannah's reaction, as you would expect, is sorrow. I mean, she probably felt pretty bad about this anyway, and then to have someone putting it in her face really makes it um, very difficult. And so, why would God do this? Well, God has a plan. And God uses Hannah's sorrow to generate a deep-felt prayer to God. She reaches out to God in distress, as you can see from this, um, this passage that Hutch read for us. And so, her prayer to God was, give me a son. So where does she go to pray? Well, she goes to the tabernacle. She gets as close to God as she possibly can. This is as close as an Israelite woman can get to the presence of God. And she goes there, and she is in deep distress. Look at the words that are used to describe. Um, she is weeping. It says that um, she was, in verse 10, she was deeply distressed. She prayed and wept bitterly. Um, verses we haven't read yet, but you'll see down in verse 16, she was speaking out of great anxiety and vexation. This is a desperate woman. This is a woman who is overcome with grief, and, is, and as she says, she's pouring out her soul to the Lord. And who does she address her prayer to? She addresses it to the Lord of hosts. Now, this is a title for God that we see frequently in Jeremiah. Um, I think it's Zechariah. It's through the Psalms considerably. This is the commander-in-chief name of God. This is the God of the armies of heaven name of God. So think about that. Here she's praying for a son, and she says, bring out the armies. We need big action here. God, I need you to do something really significant. This is the first usage of Lord of hosts in the Bible, which is really incredible to me. Here we have this woman who gets to use this incredible title first. It probably shows us that this was common at this time to pray to God in this way. But I love this title of God, the commander-in-chief of the hosts of heaven, all of the angels at his disposal. What's her emotion that she expresses? Look in, in verse 11. She says, remember me and don't forget your servant. So how does she feel? She feels forgotten. She feels like God is looking past her that God is overlooking her, that she doesn't exist in God's economy. She feels like she doesn't exist, that she's a nobody. And God's going to show her that's not true. It's a wonderful thought here. She just pours out her heart to God. And, and it's like you would think that the implication of this would be like, ooh, you're saying that to God? She is never rebuked for saying this to God. She pours out her heart. We can be just so honest with God about how we are feeling. This is a lament. That's what this, this little prayer is. It's a lament. And she says to, to God, give me a son. 
and I'll give him back. That's her vow. I will give him back if you will give him to me. It's incredible to me. Here, her heartmost desire is a child, and she's saying, I'm willing to give the child up if you will give him to me. Like, wow. I, I don't know if she prayed this prayer before. I mean, she's been doing this for years, if you look really at the text. It says year after year they would do this. If I'm her, I'm probably praying like all the time for a child. This is my heart's desire. And yet it seems to be poignant here that at this point in time, she prays with this level of desperation, enough desperation that she's willing to give the child back to God and not keep him for herself. That having a child is no longer about me. Having a child is about God. I don't know what other conclusion you can come to, because how does a mother give her small child back to God? I, I just, I have a hard time getting my head around that. There's a big question about how old Samuel is when, when he's given back, but we'll, we'll save that for later. Hmm. Yeah, right, that's good. So this isn't like a precatory prayer where, where David is saying, strike down my enemy, you know, like strike down Peninnah. You know, it's not like she's saying that. But Peninnah's comments are fueling this desperation in her. And God is using that for good. Isn't that amazing how great our God is? That he can use like the bad actions of someone to accomplish something good in our lives. We can't choose what other people do or say to us but what we do when we take them to God is what our responsibility is. And Hannah sets a wonderful example for that. All right, let's keep reading now. So if we could read verses 12 to 18. Can I have someone read those, 12 to 18? Eighteen. So I love the detail that the writer gives us here. You can see this in your mind, right? That Hannah is there praying and she's silent, but her lips are moving. She is talking to God, and, but there's no sounds coming out. Eli, the priest, misinterprets that. He says, oh, we got a drunk woman here. Like, listen, lady, go be drunk somewhere else. Don't be drunk here in front of, it's called the temple. Temple wasn't built yet, so what? 
commentators think is that the tabernacle might have had some solid walls put onto it at that point, so they're referring to it as a structure. So Hannah corrects him and says, let me explain. Does Hannah ever say what she was praying for to Eli? She never does. She just explains that she was praying, that, that she was really distressed and that she had something really heavy on her heart. She never says, I'm praying for a child. And Eli, who, who's, who's not an incredibly godly figure, in, as we'll see in the next few chapters, has a wonderful word of encouragement for her as, a, as this older man, this priest. And he says, go in peace. The God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. He, he puts his blessing on her prayer and says, this, you know, this, this, you know, hopefully this will, this will work for you. I don't think we should underestimate what a word of encouragement will do to people. What does it do to Hannah? She takes this as, as coming from God himself. And she goes away and it's like, she went away and ate and her face was no longer sad. This is done. This is a statement of a woman of faith here. That she is taking this as confirmation that God has heard her prayer. And that God will work and that God will answer wonderful relief that is seen here when she has this, this, um, this encouragement from Eli. We see God's answer is that he gives Hannah and Elkanah a son. It says in verse 19, they rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord, what did he do? He remembered. What did she, what did she say to God back in verse 11? remember me. Isn't that a wonderful parallel? She said, God, remember me. And, and God says, okay, I will. I'll remember you. This isn't hard. God remembered her. He brought her into his mind and said, I am going to act on your behalf. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. What a wonderful little synopsis after all of this long agony, we see this very short synopsis of God's answer to prayer, that baby Samuel is born in due time. And now we see, what's Hannah going to do? Is she going to fulfill her vow? And of course, being a godly woman, she does. We have somebody read verses 21 through 28. 21 through 28. Yes, Timmy.
All right, thank you. So here we see that Hannah does fulfill her vow. She prepares Samuel, first of all. She doesn't go back for this annual worship trip um, until he is ready to go. It says until he's been weaned. In our understanding of weaned, it would be no longer nursing. Um, there's some, some commentators say he was three years old. I'm just like, man, leaving a three-year-old with a stranger is like uh, just incomprehensible to me. Uh, we, we don't know exactly how old he was. I don't want to be dogmatic about that. I, I will draw your attention to this last sentence of the chapter, and he worshiped the Lord there. Who does he refer to? So we have three options. We've got a male pronoun. One option is Eli the priest. It's possible. <laughs> we got a no vote now <laughs> right up here. And then a second option is Elkanah. Elkanah was participating in this. El Elkanah was supporting his wife's decision on, on this vow. As, as a husband in this economy, he could have said, my wife's vow is not valid. And she would have been relieved from the vow. That's Old Testament stru legal structure. He supports it. And he says, this is what we're going to do as a family together. And so he is there too. So perhaps it's him worshiping. We know that he was a God worshiper from other parts of the chapter. I think the better answer is Samuel. Why? Because just referring back to the previous verse or two, it's talking about Samuel. He's the closest person in, in time space in the text that's a male. So if I'm right, which I may not be, if this is Samuel, he was old enough to worship. Three-year-old going to worship? Maybe. Maybe not. Often not. <laughs> so I don't know how old he was, but he was young. He was a child. He's, we know that he was not 15. That's not, not what this text is saying. But what I'm seeing also in this last sentence is he worshiped there, the Lord there. If this is Samuel, then El, uh, um, Hannah has been preparing Samuel for his purpose in life as a child. Your job in life is going to be to worship God and to serve him. We'll see next week that um, Samuel is serving the Lord in the temple, even as, and he's described as very young. He's young, but he's still serving. Little kids aren't too old, aren't too young to serve God. There are things that they can do that will serve God. Hannah prepared Samuel for what, he, what his life was going to be like, and then she presented him um, at the temple, and I'm sure this was enormously difficult to walk away that day, even though she knew she was doing the right thing and fulfilling her vow to get what her heart had desired for years and then to, to leave him there must have been heart-wrenching for her. It must have been difficult for, for Elkanah too, but I think it must have been heart-wrenching for, for Hannah, but she knew she was doing what was right before the Lord because of her vow. And then in chapter 2, we see a second prayer that really is like a song, the song of Hannah in verses 1 through 11. We're not going to read it now for time because this is where your homework comes in. But let me, let me just um, encourage you with a few points. So from a, from a book structure standpoint, this song occurs in the very early parts of the book. 
at the end of 2 Samuel, there's another song, and that song is the song of David. So we have this nice parallelism between these two songs. This song has a lot of parallels to Mary's Magnificat in Luke, I should have wrote that down, two, one, Luke one. That's right, it's before Jesus was born. Yeah, thank you, Luke one. And, and one commentator actually thought that Mary pulled from this song in, in her song. Oh, that's really interesting. I didn't take the time to compare them. That'd be a nice little study, actually. But what we see in this song is a great theology of God. Hannah knew God. She knew him. She knew him well. And so that, that theology of God is woven with this joy of answered prayer and also some very personal feelings about the situation. And so the, the homework piece here is I've, I've put 12 blanks on the back side of your notes to write down these attributes of God that Hannah includes in her song. And so I've given you the first one to kind of give you a, a start here. So my God is the source of salvation. So let's just look at chapter 2, verse 1. Hannah prayed and said, My heart exults in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. She realized that God is the one who saves. He's the only one who saves. And so God is the source of salvation. So that's the first one of these. And I found 12. That's why I have 12 blanks. If you don't find them all, that's fine. If you find more, that's very possible too. I'm not saying that this is a definitive list. Um, there's some overlap. There's at least one of them that has like multiple nuances to it. Um, so I just encourage you to spend, take half an hour sometime this week and spend it reading this and thinking about what Hannah had to say about God and then think about how that shaped her life and how that shaped her prayer and how that shaped her view of, of her family and her children because she did go on to have more children. That's a wonderful thing. So we see a great theology of God interwoven with personal feelings in those verses. Now, let's take a look. Okay, that's what I was just saying. So we'll move on to the next slide. Let's look at verse 10. Yeah. It's a good parallel. Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely an element of sacrifice in this, no question. Let's drop down to verse 10 in chapter 2 and see how she closes out her song. <clears throat> she says, The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. Did she know something about adversaries? Yeah, I think she did. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king. He'll give strength to his king. There, there, there isn't a king right now. There's a king that's coming, but it's not here right now. She is looking forward with eyes of faith, and she sees there is a king in our future. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed, his Messiah, his chosen one. Whoa, this is really good stuff. Hannah, you knew what was going on. You saw what God was doing in, his, in, his, um, in, his, in this dispensation that, that the way he was working with man was not going to always be the same, that there was, there was judges now, there's going to be kings coming. 
And so here we see that theme of kingship that's moving in. And this king is going to be strong. It's going to be appointed by God. And he's going to be anointed. He's going to be a Messiah figure. So, what is he saying? She's saying. She's saying a a king is coming to Israel. Some wonderful foreshadowing here for us for the rest of the book. And what we see in conclusion, really, is that Hannah longed for a son, and God provided a son for her. And so here's one of those contrasts. And what we're seeing, a glimpse into the future of the book, is that Israel's soon going to be longing for a king to rule over them, and God will again provide. Not everything happens in a perfect way. We see Hannah's situation, you think, oh, what she went through with Peninnah, that was not perfect. That, was, that must have been horrible. It must have been very difficult for her. But God used that for his glory. He used that in his plan. And we're going to see the, the way God provides a king for Israel. It's going to start with the Israel saying, we want a king like everybody else. We don't want a king like you, Samuel, because they're speaking to him. Or we don't want a king like God to rule over us. And God's going to use Saul to show them kings aren't <laughs> all they're cracked up to be. And then he's going to use, them, use David to show a glimpse into the future of what a true godly king will be like. So looking forward to seeing how God unfolds uh, this theme of kingship and using this lifting up and pushing down uh, motive um, as we go through um, these books. So I didn't hear any bells, maybe it's just me, but it's uh, quarter after, so take time for like one question if there is any, and then we'll close with prayer. Christine. Hmm. That's a great point. That's a great point. So, mm. yeah, 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 yeah. Our children are in God's hands. As much as we love our kids, God loves them more. And committing them to his care. I'm sure Hannah didn't stop praying for Samuel when she dropped him off. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful that you're a giving, caring, loving God, one that meets the desires of our heart and gives us what we need and sometimes what we want. We just thank you for Hannah's example of faithfulness and desire to, um, to give to you even when you gave to her what she had wanted and that, that willingness to sacrifice for your good. And we just look forward to seeing how you will, you will reveal your king and the king that is still coming soon. And we just ask that as we, as we sit here in the 21st century, that you'd send Jesus back soon, that he would reign over this earth, and that we would be part of that kingdom. And we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.